Welcome everyone to As For Me and My House Season 2. Thanks for joining us in your homes, around your tables, or in your small groups in our church-wide study, Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. This is part two of chapter five, Ever Reigning King. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's an expression you've probably heard at some point. When King George VI of England died in 1952, that was the announcement. The king is dead. Long live the queen. And so we are reminded that kings don't live forever. Uh, not, even, not even, of course, good kings or queens or good leaders. At some point, the king is dead. So long live the next one. And on and on it goes. And that takes us to where we left off in our study to King David of Israel. God's people are living in God's land under God's king, King David, who leads them in living under God's rule. But as good as King David is, he won't last. He can't last. At some point, the king is dead. But before he died, we saw last time that the Lord made a new promise of a new king in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. And this would be a king like any other, unlike any other. In that promise, we were told some amazing facts about this promised king. Like he will be a king from David's line, whose kingdom God will establish, whose rule will be forever, and who will be to God as a son to a father. And so we left off with God's promise of an ever-reigning king to come for God's people. Now let's just pause right there and imagine what this is telling us. Think of our national leaders. Think of our politics. Think of the ones that lead us. Think of the turmoil and the scandal and the heartache that is associated often to these, all through history and nationally and globally. Now think of this promise of a king who will come and who will reign forever who will literally be a descendant of David, whom God is a father to, and him to God a son. Now, if this is true, this is a game changer, to say the least. And this ever-reigning king, it is, of course, Jesus Christ. And that brings us in our study today to Mark chapter 9, where in Mark chapter 9, we are given a glimpse of fulfillment to what was promised back in 2 Samuel 7. In Mark 9, we are given a snapshot of Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophesied ever-reigning king. Now, as we look at this passage, passage today, what should we be looking for? Well, number one, to look at his glory. It's revealed here. It says in Mark 9, verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, what's going on here? Hmm. Well, a lot. Now, Jesus had taken this inner circle of Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain by themselves. And like you read, it says here that he was transfigured before them. That word um, transfigured, it's where we get our word metamorphosis from. That word means to change. And here it speaks of a radical transformation, not in Jesus's nature, but a transformation that is revealing his true self, his, his true essence. And, and this is being done in an outward, visible manifestation. Yeah, obviously something big is going on here. So imagine if you were Peter, James, or John seeing Jesus in this moment. They saw Jesus as nobody else on earth had. They saw him in radiant glory. Matthew's account said his face was shining like the sun and clothes dazzling white, his true identity shining forth in glory. 
This event makes me think of one of my favorite Bible passages, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Peter, James, and John saw his glory on the mountain, and I wonder if their faces left shining like Moses' did when he left meeting with God on Mount Sinai. In the same way as we behold Christ's glory, we are transformed to be like him. I pray that we would see Christ's glory today, this week, as we hear this podcast, as we read the scriptures, as we listen to sermons. I pray you would see how good and glorious he is. Nothing in this world compares to him. It's in seeing his glory that we can see transformation happen in our own lives. So let's look at his glory. Now, what do we see? Well, we see a clear glimpse in this passage that Jesus is God. Uh, We see how in his earthly ministry, Jesus was, you could say, God incognito or God undercover, but not here in this moment. In this moment, his true essence is seen. Listen to what Psalm 104 verse 1 in the Old Testament said. It said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Yeah, that psalm that you read, that was a verse there ascribed to God. Mm. God, you are very great. Mm. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And here in our text, Jesus, if nothing else, is just this. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. So we can match this up, can't we? Jesus is robed as God is robed. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the triune God. But apart from this moment, Jesus was otherwise incognito. He was not wearing his splendor and his majesty, but he was wearing his humility. Right. Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7 say it this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so while Jesus' glory was being displayed here in brilliant light, something else then happened. Something else unexpected guests. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, who again were these guys, and why did they show up? Well, first, they represent the law and the prophets from the time of the Old Testament. Moses represented the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Yes, and they were also both great deliverers. Hmm. So the fact that they show up here from heaven, from God, is a signal to us. Hmm. It's a signal that the law and the prophets have now been fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. It's as if they come to say, hey, you can close the book on our jobs. Our job had been to point to the coming Messiah. And now he is here in Jesus, in Jesus who has brought the kingdom of God near. It's like they're appearing as saying, see, this is the one we were talking about the whole time. The one we were pointing to the whole time. Look at him in his gospel. It's like they're saying, yes, that's what the whole Bible was about and is about. It all points to the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so let's take a step back for just a minute. So what should we be seeing again on this mountaintop? Well, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophesied ever reigning king. That's right. So we are to look at his glory. Look at his glory as God. Look at his glory as the one uh, to whom the whole Bible is pointing to. So behold all of this. Look at all of this. Which begs the question, what do we behold? What captures our eye? Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to behold things of this world and settle for lesser glories. 
What we are in awe of shows the state of our hearts. What we behold will impact our affections, emotions, thoughts, words, and actions in all of our relationships. Right. So what are we beholding? What are you looking at? You know, it could be that it is uh, chiefly sports or entertainment or even a relationship, even a good relationship. But if any of these is more glorious to us than Jesus, uh, well, this is telling us that our vision is skewed, that we've got it wrong, because each of these will disappoint us if they are not subject to Jesus in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we are all wired to be in awe of something. It's in our human nature, but the only worthy object of our awe is our Creator, who is worthy of all glory and honor and adoration. You know, I spent my life running after my own glory, elevating relationships and work to the point that it was idolatrous, and it left me empty and unsatisfied. And this is what happens when we live for ourselves and the things of this world. But when I came to know the Lord, I realized I was created to worship Him and Him alone. And this is what satisfied my soul. This is what filled me with a joy and a peace that I had never known before. Life was no longer about my own glory, which was so empty. It was about His. Right, so this scene here is telling us again, look to his glory. You could say, have eyes only for him. And maybe that's a fitting expression with Valentine's Day just two days away. Have eyes only for him, only for the Lord. Mm -hmm. In this text, we see that looking to Jesus to see his glory is essential, but also essential is listening to him. Yeah, and that's what we see coming up next in this next part of the, of the text, uh, listening to him listening to his word. Now, the disciples, understandably, at this point in the story, they are amazed at the revelation of the glorified Christ. Verse 6 says that they were terrified. Peter, and, you know, not surprisingly, it's Peter who speaks up. He says this, it is good that we are here. Now, hey, you think? Maybe that is quite an understatement. It is good that they were there. Mm -hmm. He then suggests that this mountain summit should be continued, and he, James, and John will gladly construct three tents, one for Jesus and two for the honored guests from the past. Yeah, Peter said to Jesus, verse 5, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So what should we make of Peter's suggestion? Well, uh, human wisdom is what we should make of it. Peter's suggestion, it's reflecting that it's reflecting human thinking, not divine wisdom. I mean, yes, how wonderful would it have been to stay on the mountaintop and bask in his glory? Right, but Peter's idea is not just flawed, it is foolish. Jesus not coming down and going to the cross would mean no salvation for Peter or any of us. Yes, and isn't this just so true for us that we love the mountaintop? We think all of life should be lived right there. And we think that God should share that thinking with us. You know, I remember when I was uh, a 16-year-old and uh, I had been serving at Green Bay Bible Camp uh, for a whole summer that year as a teenager. So think of that. All summer long, you're learning about Jesus. Uh, all summer long on beautiful Lake Okanagan with all your friends. And, and the truth is, if they had not sent us home at the end of August... I would have stayed. I would have stayed all year long or longer. But you know, that is not discipleship. Staying at camp forever mm-hmm. or staying on the mountain forever. Mm-hmm. Discipleship means denying yourself, mm-hmm. taking up a cross and following him. Mm-hmm. Jesus talks about these things. And, and you can't do these things and selfishly stay on the Mount of Glory. Mm-hmm. And how come? 
Well, there, there, there are needs to be met in mm. the valley below. If we want to share the glory of Christ on the mountaintop, we must be willing to follow him into the sufferings of the valley below. Mm. So here's the end of that story. I came home from camp at the end of that summer. And, and that September, I started in a brand new school in my, in my grade 11 year. You see, around that time, our family had moved from Vancouver to Richmond. So coming home from camp meant this for me. It meant coming home to follow and serve Jesus in a totally brand new and lonely environment. This was a, a new public high school to me, and it was tough. Uh, starting all over, and let's be honest, at that time in my life, I was not really an extrovert at all. So I ate my lunches, ate my lunches alone, and I would take those long walks home from school by myself in that lower mainland rain. <laughs> and it was the valley, but it was all in the Lord's plan mm. uh, to grow me in ways that I could not have grown in otherwise. Yeah. You know, I would get home from school, and it was often then just me and my Bible in my bedroom with a highlighter. Mm. And the Lord was using all of that in my life. Mm. So no, um, our human perspective uh, on God's grand redemptive plan, our perspective is often short-sighted and unclear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In sinful weakness, we would rather avoid the cross. We'd like to stay on the mountain and make ourselves comfortable. But in contrast, Jesus here, he will embrace the cross. He will come down. He will ascend Calvary's hill Mm -hmm. and drink the cup of suffering that was filled with the wrath of God. Mm So what do we see? Instead of our human perspectives to make decisions, what do we need? We need the, di- the divine perspective. Isn't that true? Yes, and that's exactly what we see next. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This cloud was the Shekinah glory of God. And right away, what we see is that we do not need man-made tents. We need the words of the God who speaks and that with thunder and authority. That's what is happening here. God speaks and speaks loudly and with authority. And what does he say? Uh, two things. Uh, number one, he says, this is my beloved son. And again, this is a declaration of Jesus's divinity. Yeah, this is God's beloved son, this, his unique, one-of-a-kind son. When the second person of the triune God became incarnate as a man, he took on the relationship of a son to a father. And it's a declaration of Jesus's divinity and authority. But also, what does he say? He says, listen to him. Listen to him. That's the present imperative uh, tense. So listen to him. Listen to Jesus and only him. Mm -hmm. And this is whom we should take all of our cues from. This is what it's telling us. Mm -hmm. Listen to him. Not listen to social media. Not celebrity. Not self-help gurus. Listen to him. So Moses and Elijah, they were great revealers of God's truth, along with all the other prophets. But the voice of God commands us to listen to his son. Mm. Listen to Jesus. He is the greatest of them all with no rival. Now, if we are in doubt of that, then uh, verse 8 clears up the matter. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The cloud disappears, Elijah and Moses vanish, and Jesus only remains. You know, in the end, among all the other options options that the world puts forth, only Jesus remains. Only Jesus will remain. Only his word endures. This makes me think of Isaiah 48 and James 1.11. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. So this text is telling us our perspectives are often foolish. God's perspective is always what we need. Right. This is a great word for us. If Jesus is the ever reigning king, and he is, then his word has ultimate authority in our lives. He is the sovereign. He has the right to rule over our time, our emotions, our money, our homes, our jobs. He has the right to reign authoritatively. You know, the first time I ever heard the gospel presented was from a gospel tract in between teaching Pilates classes at Washington State University, and a student presented the tract to me. One page is still clear in my mind. There are two pictures in the tract of chairs, kind of like thrones. There is one with self on the throne and the other with Jesus on the throne of your life. You are to choose which one represents your life. And the question this presents before us is, who's directing the course of our lives? Does Jesus's word have an impact on us? When we read commands in the scripture, do we look at them as mere options or as words directly from a king, which are to be taken seriously and obeyed? The tract describes that the self-directed life has not actually received the Savior because he must not just be Savior, but the Lord of our life as well. Let us heed the Father's instruction to listen to the Son, and may his word be the ultimate authority in our lives. Okay, so now as the story moves on in the text, they come down. They come down the mountain, they descend from the mountain, and they receive a command from Jesus. Verse 9, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That was their instruction, to tell no one what what they had seen. But uh, now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's very different. Jesus has instructed his disciples to tell everyone about him. Mm. But here's the point. The point is that he is risen from the dead. Again, in verse 9, it says, Jesus said it this way, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Uh, That was said by Jesus as if it was a done deal, that it would happen, and it did happen. It has happened. Jesus did rise. He is alive. And this brings us back now to the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the ever-reigning king. In Matthew, we've gotten a glimpse of his glorious reign, but in the day that he comes again, we will have the, have the full picture. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what Hebrews 1.8 says. And in Hebrews 1.8, here it is God the Father speaking about Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, But of the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this is not a wish of long live the king. No, Jesus, the ever-reigning king does live forever, and he will rule powerfully, perfectly, and eternally. Okay, so what should we do? Well, again, friends, we should look to him and behold his glory, and listen to him, follow his word. And this is how to live on every mountaintop and in every valley. It's by living as a citizen in the kingdom of the ever-reigning king. So we have to ask, if, if you have never committed your life to this king before, there is nothing more important than doing this. Uh, how, how can you do this? Uh, well, you can do it this very moment uh, by coming to holy God, admitting to him that you are a sinner who has rebelled against him and gone your own way, and then putting your trust in Jesus as your only hope and savior for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, what does Romans 10.9 tell us, Lauren, in the Bible? 
It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yeah, and how can that be? How can a holy God accept an unholy sinner? And it is by Christ's shed blood in your place as your substitute on the cross, paying the, the, the wages of sin, which is death. And, and that, is why, that is why the king came down from the mountain of glory. He came mm-hmm. to come down into the valley of suffering, mm-hmm. to go to the cross, to suffer and die in the place of sinners. Mm-hmm. And so it is by his grace and grace alone, through your faith in him, that he will forgive you, that he will accept your eye, that he will cleanse you from the guilt of sin and the shame of sin. And that can be sins that you've done, sins done to you, and he will adopt you into the family of God. He will do this. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to him in repentance and faith, and then begin to live a new life with Jesus as your king. And find that his reign in your life is powerful, perfect, and eternal. So may Jesus, who is the ever-reigning king, be your king as you put your faith in him. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast comes out every second Friday. Join us again in two weeks as we continue in our study through Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. We will be diving into the first half of chapter 6, Future Beyond Judgment. May the Lord bless you in Christ. See you next time.